listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 14 in the series. Today's episode is titled, Deadly Destiny. So welcome to episode number 14 of Trojan War, the podcast. This episode is titled, Deadly Destiny. Now, if you recall at the end of the previous episode, Zeus had decided to grant Hector and the Trojan soldiers temporary ascendancy over the battlefield. The plan was very simple. Uh, Zeus had decided that what he would do is he would honor Thetis' request to help restore the honor of her son Achilles. And the way that Zeus was going to honor Thetis' request was to, well, essentially allow the Trojans to completely decimate the Greek army up until such time as Agamemnon, commander-in-chief of the Greeks, well came to heel, recognized how badly he had dishonored Achilles, had apologized to Achilles, had restored Achilles' honor, and and only at that stage was Zeus then going to once again turn the tides of battle and, and allow Achilles to return to the Greek forces triumphant. And, and obviously at that point, well, the days of Trojan ascendancy would be over. So that had been the plan. And the first day of Zeus's plan had worked remarkably, remarkably well. By by nightfall, the Trojan army had pushed Agamemnon and the Greek forces right back to the beach, right back to their tents, right back to the boats. And, and it was only a matter of time until Hector and the Trojans managed to actually set the entire Greek fleet on fire. And this would be a disaster because the Greeks had nowhere else to run. They they had no walls to hide behind. They're, they had no allies. So if the boats were gone, then the Greeks had no ultimate exit strategy off of that beach. And even if the Greeks managed to somehow survive if their boats were burned, well, then the Greeks couldn't reprovision their army. So the boats were critical. Once the boats were burned, it it was over for the Greeks forever and permanently. So the only thing that had actually saved the Greek forces that night is it eventually had got so dark that, well, Hector had recognized he couldn't continue fighting. So he had blown a trumpet of retreat. He had brought his Trojan soldiers back, but so confident had Hector been in victory that he didn't even bring his Trojan soldiers back inside of the walls that night. Rather, they camped out in the midpoint of the plain. They set up huge bonfires. They set a watch to to keep an eye on the Greeks. And Hector had told his boys, he said, boys, if the Greeks decide to make a run for it in the night and run away back to Greece, well, let's make sure that they, they head back to Greece with plenty of hours, spears and arrows in their back. So I want to take you at the start of this episode inside of the command tent, uh, central headquarters, if you will, of Agamemnon's Operation Trojan Storm, where he has convened an an emergency council of all the Greek warlords. It's now decision time. What do you do? Because in the morning, well, the the tides of battle are looking as though it's it's all over for the Greeks. So do you run away now? Do you wait till the morning? And and I want to bring you inside of that tent and we'll, we'll pick up today's episode with the evening in the tent and Agamemnon's conversation with his warlords. Well, Agamemnon opened the speaking, of course, as was his privilege as the commander-in-chief. And the fact of the matter is, by this stage, Agamemnon was a defeated general. He he didn't even attempt to rally the Greek forces. He, he turned around and he said, gentlemen, I've come to the conclusion that the prophecies are true. The walls of Troy will never be destroyed by an enemy force 
We have spent 10 years attempting every possible way to destroy those walls, to get over those walls, under those walls, through those walls. It is not going to happen, gentlemen. Let's just cut our losses and go home and, well, hope for the best. Well, a few of the warlords had, had, had muttered disapproval at this plan, uh, Diomedes foremost among them, but it, it had frankly been a fairly half-hearted disapproval. They, they didn't really have a strategy at this stage to to do anything but escape. And 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 then at that stage, well, that's when Nestor, the, the aged warlord, the Nestor of the long and windy speeches, if you will, Nestor had, had stepped forward and said a few words, Agamemnon, if you please. And of course, whenever Nestor said a few words, everybody in the room settled in for what would be an, an epically epically long speeches as Nestor reviewed uh, uh, precedent, ancient history, uh, his own recollections of his own glorious military career, and then eventually worked his way towards a thesis. So so when Nestor said a few words, Agamemnon, if you please, the, the warlords thought it's going to be a long night, but then Nestor stood up and Nestor spoke. And Nestor did all the things that he was notorious for doing. It was a long and windy speech, but it, there was actually a fairly intelligent thesis behind it. And the thesis of Nestor's words were this. He said, Agamemnon, you are a fool. You're, you're, you're a bloody idiot and a fool. And I told you way, way back in that day that you took away Briseis, that it was a big mistake and you didn't listen to me then. And, and young Achilles went down the beach and then Achilles isn't in the army. And I warned you what would happen, Agamemnon. And, and then, of course, Nestor had gone on and on about historical stories and precedents about this sort of thing happening before, but when he got back to his thesis again, the, I, the gist of it was, Nestor said, Agamemnon, you have two options now. You either run away and Operation Trojan Storm is over, or Agamemnon, you swallow your pride and you put together an honor, compensation, restoration package for Achilles and you deliver it to him tonight. Because without Achilles back in the army by morning, well, we're all dead men on this beach. Well, Agamemnon at this stage, recognized that he had a choice between two distinctly unpalatable options. And and given the choice, Agamemnon decided that, well, yes, now was the time to actually apologize to Achilles for having taken away his slave girl, Briseis, and, and hence diminished Achilles's honor. And now was the time to cobble together some sort of a compensation package that would get Achilles's honor sufficiently restored that Achilles would return to the fighting. And, and then maybe then the Greeks would have an opportunity of actually living another day on the beaches and the plains of Troy. So Agamemnon agreed with Nestor and he said, I will offer Achilles a compensation package. And, and Nestor and the other warlords said, you know, it's going to have to be pretty, pretty sweet because you seriously dishonored the lad and, and, and Achilles is pretty prickly about these kind of things. So, so Agamemnon thought about it for a few minutes and, and then he came up with a compensation package. And ladies and gentlemen, the package that Agamemnon came up with was remarkably stunning, comprehensive, and and generous. Uh, once he itemized everything he was going to offer Achilles to restore Achilles' honor, well, every other warlord sitting in that tent said, Agamemnon, this is ludicrous. This is this is so much compensation that Achilles will be back in the army fighting tonight if you want. And here's what Agamemnon offered. And some of the things on this list we are going to find a little bit bizarre because, well, this was an offer of compensation made 3,500 years ago in the Bronze Age. And, and some of our currencies have remained the same. Another of our currencies have certainly changed. The first thing that Agamemnon offered Achilles 
he offered Achilles seven brand new tripods. Now, you know what these essentially were, were tripods were something that you placed over top of a cooking fire and then you hung pots from. And, and, and this doesn't really translate well down through the Bronze Age. I, this would be the equivalent of offering, a, you know, a modern day hero, a, a new dishwasher or a microwave oven. It's, it, it doesn't seem too exciting to us. And, and, and Agamemnon added on to that then 20 brand new cauldrons, which I suppose were hanging over the brand new tripods. So, so these are these are things that apparently had great value and worth inside of the Bronze Age because they were included inside of the compensation package. But then Agamemnon got onto things that, well, you and I would clearly understand as having some significant honor restoration value inside of a culture that e equated material goods with honor at a one-to-one -one ratio. The next thing Agamemnon offered Achilles was 10 large gold bars. Well, I would take those. That would be a, that would be a fine compensation, followed by 12 very fine racehorses. Again, something which we can see some monetary value on. And, and then next followed by the 20 gold bars and the seven and the 12 racehorses, seven women. And, and these women were particularly special because Agamemnon said that the women he would offer Achilles were not only beautiful, but skilled at domestic labor. So this was really double dipping. Uh, and then on top of that, Agamemnon promised, and this was likely the most critical thing, he said that he would return Briseis to Achilles's tent. And Agamemnon swore that he had not bedded the girl or touched her once. Now, how on earth, aside from taking the word of Agamemnon, which isn't a word that most warlords would have taken at face value, anybody would be able to ascertain whether or not this was the case. I don't know, but it certainly was the prudent thing to say. And and it was certainly a prudent fiction if it wasn't true for everybody to agree if this compensation package was going to work. But Agamemnon wasn't done. Then he turned around and he said, furthermore, once Troy falls, he, he would add to Achilles' compensation. He announced that once Troy fell, he would give Achilles first pick of 20 of the most gorgeous and beautiful of the Trojan princesses. And this just indicates how desperate Agamemnon was, ladies and gentlemen, to get Achilles back. Because if you remember back episodes ago, when Agamemnon had lost Chryseis, his slave girl, the, the, the whole thing that had precipitated this downward spiral for the last few episodes of, of our story, well, Achilles had tried to talk some reason into Agamemnon and said, yes, Agamemnon, you've lost Chryseis, and that's a temporary diminishment of honor, but cheer up, Agamemnon, when Troy falls, we will compensate you for, for the loss of Chryseis by giving you three or four Trojan princesses. And, and, and so now here, Agamemnon, desperately, desperately needing Achilles, is offering 20 Trojan princesses. And, and that wasn't all. Agamemnon said, and, and it, the next thing I will add to the package uh, is that I will give Achilles the hand in marriage of any of my three remaining daughters. Uh, Agamemnon had four daughters, and of course, one of them he had sacrificed, poor Iphigenia, but there were th apparently three left. And, and Achilles was going to get his pick of these. And then Agamemnon offered Achilles seven kingdoms with superb beachfront properties. So, so he put together the list. He turned to the warlords. He said, what do you think? Will this work for Achilles? Is this sufficient compensation to get him back into the army? And the, and, and the warlords were overwhelmed and staggered because, of course, honor in these cultures, folks, was a zero-sum game. So the truth is that Agamemnon and offering all of these things to Achilles was raising Achilles' honor at the expense of diminishing Agamemnon's own. And, and that's an incredible fact. So that done, the warlords having agreed the compensation package was fair, then Agamemnon turned around and he decided that he did not want to actually go make the offer personally to Achilles. And instead, he would send some ambassadors, some silver-tongued ambassadors as an embassy to Achilles, and they would put forward the compensation package from Agamemnon King 
of Kings. Uh, so Agamemnon appointed his embassy, and it was a very judiciously chosen group of three men. The inevitable first person of the embassy, of course, was Odysseus. Uh, he, he was the wordsmith, the most elegant of, and eloquent of the speakers. He was the man who was also the pragmatist. So Agamemnon appointed Odysseus as first ambassador in chief. He would be actually presenting the formal compensation package. And, and, and then Agamemnon, just to be prudent, had thrown in a, an old warlord into the embassy. And, the, and that man's name was Phoenix. And Phoenix was essentially a surrogate father to Achilles. Phoenix was an old man who had grown up on the Achilles family estate. So Phoenix was going to be there to pull the, the paternal and the family heartstrings in begging Achilles to come back and fight. And then the third member of the embassy that Agamemnon selected was, again, a fairly judicious choice. He turned around to Ajax, the greatest of the fighters, the bulwark of the Greek forces, and Achilles' favorite comrade in arms. These two had done all of their most glorious fighting together all of their life. And, and Agamemnon had turned around to Ajax and said, Ajax, go see if you can just sort of, you know, appeal to him on behalf of, of the soldiers, on behalf of the army. See if you can get him back as, a, you know, in the brothers in arms sort of thing. And, and so Ajax said, I, I will do my best. Achilles is my friend. And, and off the embassy had headed way, way down to the far end of the beach to the tent of Achilles. Well, when they arrived at the tent of Achilles, they were greeted by Achilles and by Achilles' tentmate, a, a man named Patroclus. And, and Achilles had turned to Patroclus and said, lay out the best of food and wine. I will, these, I'm delighted to see my guests. Uh, Achilles clearly had no grudge against any other warlords on the beach but Agamemnon. And, and after Patroclus had laid out a lovely meal and, and then Achilles and the three warlords had, had sat down and consumed their meal, Achilles turned to the warlords and said, so, so what brought you here today? What's the purpose of your, of your embassy to me? And Odysseus had got up and Odysseus had said, Agamemnon relents, Agamemnon apologizes, Agamemnon recognizes that he has deeply damaged and violated your honor, Achilles, and, and Agamemnon desperately needs you back into the army, and he wants to restore your honor above that of any other man in the beach, including Agamemnon himself. And, and Odysseus had laid out the terms, the conditions, and, and, and the goods, the booty, if you will, inside of this very generous honor restoration compensation package. And, and after Odysseus Odysseus had finished laying out the details. He turned around and Odysseus, ever the pragmatist, had said, and, and Achilles, uh, just speaking personally, this is remarkably good. You better grab this and run with it, son, because you know, who knows how long this offer will be on the table and, and the fortunes of war being what they are. If Well, if the fortunes change in the other direction and the Greeks turn out to be ascendant tomorrow morning without you, Achilles, well, then Agamemnon might take some of this stuff off of the table. So so grab it now while the going is good. And, and of course, that was Odysseus, uh, the pragmatist and, and the eloquent speaker through and through to the core. Well, when Odysseus turned around and confidently wrapped up his speech, uh, it was Achilles' turn to respond. And what Achilles said well, it totally shocked and stunned the assembled embassy from Agamemnon. Achilles turned around and he rejected the honor compensation package out of hand. Now, the thing that's critical for us to understand, folks, is that Achilles didn't reject the honor compensation package out of hand because he thought that it was a bad or an insufficient deal. This wasn't some form of protracted labor negotiation where Achilles said, no, I know that's Agamemnon's first offer. Now, now here's my counter offer and, and, and then bargaining would begin. It was nothing like that at all. If it had been something like that, well, then Odysseus, the pragmatist, would have gone back to Agamemnon and said, we likely need an, a, you know, another city and maybe another 10 bars of gold. But it wasn't that sort of thing at all. Achilles rejected the compensation package on two bases. And, and the first one, well, the warlords understood it a little bit. Achilles turned around and 
clearly he despised Agamemnon on a very, very personal level. This thing with Briseis had been festering ever since the incident way back with the fake wedding, with the sacrifice of Iphigenia, and, and, and things had been ugly over the last decade on the beach. And as a consequence, Achilles really loathed Agamemnon on a personal level. And the first thing that Achilles turned around is, uh, he turned around to Odysseus and said, I hate like the gates of Hades themselves, a man who says one thing and does another. And and Achilles was essentially saying he thought Agamemnon was duplicitous. He, he said, you know, the, the guy is without shame. He didn't even have the moral gumption to come down to the end of the beach and, and present his apology to me for dishonoring me and present this honor compensation package himself. Instead, he sent an embassy. He, he won't even face me and look into my eyes. What sort of a man is this? And, and, and then the final thing that Achilles turned around and said is he said, and look, he said, he took away my honor once when he thought it was advantageous and easy for him to do it. He stole Briseis from me. What's to say that when the fortunes of war don't turn, Agamemnon won't turn around and all the stuff, all the honor compensation he is offering me now, he won't take back from me at some other future time. And and Achilles basically said, you, you can play me and trick me once, but you're not going to do it twice. So the first reason why Achilles rejected the package is it came from Agamemnon, and he thought Agamemnon was a, a shifty, greasy, opportunistic, lying politician. And, well, Achilles' assessment of Agamemnon seems to be fairly reasonably spot on. But even that, the other warlords might have, well, quietly been able to smooth over or with a bit of a nudge and a nod concede and, 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 and then appeal to Achilles on other basis. But the critical thing then is Achilles went on and he said, furthermore, and here's the real reason why I'm not interested in this package. And Achilles explained that, well, in the last few days, well, the Greeks and Trojans have been fighting and Achilles had been sitting in his tent. Achilles had had an awful lot of time to think. And the thing Achilles explained to the embassy that had been occupying his thoughts for the last few days had been, well, this dual prophecy hanging over his head. Now, folks, you remember the terms of this prophecy very well. Uh, Achilles was fated to have one of two destinies, and, and, and destiny A was that Achilles would lead a glorious, heroic, wonderful life uh, and, and then die violently in his youth, but his honor and his glory would live down through the ages in song and story. And, and that was the first option available to Achilles. And, and, and the second option available to him, of course, was that he would lead a long, quiet life of anonymity and then die peacefully but happily in his bed of old age. And, and Achilles turned around to the embassy and he said, you know, I've been thinking about this. My mother has told me about these two packages and, and my mother has recently also informed me that if I stay and continue to fight on the beaches of Troy, then surely it will be package A, which I end up getting as my fate. I, I will die here on the beaches of Troy, my mother has told me, if I select to stay and fight in this war. And, and Achilles had turned around and he said, you know, and I've been thinking, gentlemen, what, what really does it profit a man to gain honor if he loses his life in the process? And, you know, once a, a man's soul and spirit have left him, what does he really have left anyway? And, and life is all we really have. And, and consequently, gentlemen, I've decided I'm no longer really interested in honor at all. I, I don't care about honor. And consequently, I don't care about Agamemnon's honor restoration package, however generous it is. Things like that don't matter to me anymore. Gentlemen, I just want to, I want to sail back to my home kingdom. I, I, I want to settle down. I, I want to meet a nice girl. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I, I want to, you know, start planning for my retirement. And, and nobody knows who I am down through the centuries then. I am good and comfortable with that. Well, the moment he said it, folks, uh, 
Odysseus, who had never in his entire life been at a loss for words, was stunned into a complete silence and loss for words. And Homer tells us that the three warlords sat there inside of the tent of Achilles, speechless for a very long time. And and the reason why, of course, is that, well, what Achilles had essentially just done is he had rejected the entire basis, the entire ethos, the entire cultural value system of Bronze Age warlord Greek or Trojan culture. And Achilles had said, the things that matter to you and the things that used to matter to me the most, or the only things that matter, which is attaining as much honor in this life as possible, that doesn't matter to me at all. Now, this presented a huge problem for the embassy. How do you how do you negotiate with a man who essentially rejects the, the basic values and presuppositions that you're bringing to the negotiating table. Uh, you know, negotiations is all about, is all about currency. And, and what do you do if the man who you, you bring a currency to turns around and says, I, I, I reject the, the validity and the basis of that currency. Well, what do you possibly have left? And, and so the embassy sat there stunned. And ladies and gentlemen, I cannot overemphasize how shocking this was. Inside of a Bronze Age warrior culture that, well, Achilles had grown up with, he'd been imbued with it. All these other men at the beach had been imbued with it. There was no other way of thinking. And and Achilles was now proposing a fundamental new world view. And, and the warlords were hopelessly and grossly ill-equipped to, to know how to negotiate with a, with a man who had this strange and completely incomprehensible worldview. So, so Odysseus sat there stunned and, well, poor Phoenix, the, the old man, he, he stepped up and he, he took a go at, at trying to convince Odysseus to, to re-enter the army. And Phoenix appealed to, to the heartstrings. He turned around and, and he made a very, very, very long and a very, very long windy speech full of historical examples. And one of the things I can't help noticing, ladies and gentlemen, inside of the Trojan War epic is that there seems to be a direct relationship that the older the warlord, the longer the speech. And and I have to confess that as a 21st century listener, sometimes when when Nestor, or in this case, when Phoenix get wound up and get into their epically, epically long speeches and their citation of historical precedent and their own personal stories, I, I, I can't have get a little bit less than charitable once in a while and kind of want to say, come on, Grandpa, get to the point. But I, I think I'm actually misreading that. Um, in the Bronze Age, old age was, I think, respected and venerated much more than maybe we do in the 21st century. And and so maybe the warlords on the beach, well, they'd look at these speeches and they'd sigh and they'd recognize it's going on for a long time. They they were likely a little bit more charitable. And, and, and the truth of the matter is that sometimes, even though Nestor and Phoenix went on at length, the thesis was actually reasonably sound at the end of the day. So, so Phoenix turned around and said, you know, Achilles, do it for your family. Do it for your dad. Achilles, I raised you growing up. Your dad, uh, your dad sent me here to look after you and to make sure that you were an honorable warlord. And, and so Achilles, do the honorable thing, if not for yourself, at least for your family and, and other warlords, Achilles. And then this is where, you know, Phoenix got into his long historical precedence. Other warlords have been dishonored and they have come to terms with it and they've accepted that they have to accept the compensation package. And, and Achilles, you could be part of that long, proud tradition of other warlords. And, and, and when Phoenix finished and sat down, clearly exhausted, uh, Achilles had turned around and, oh, well, he'd been very gentle with Phoenix. He had, he'd said, thank you, Phoenix, for your, your heartfelt and meaningful words. And and I, I'm sorry, Phoenix, but I, 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 I am still going home tomorrow morning. I, 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 I'm moved by your words, but 
but I am not going to take action based on them. And then poor Phoenix, who looked completely defeated at this point. Achilles had turned to, to Patroclus, who was standing quietly in the background, and said, Patroclus, could you make up a, a bed in the inner tent for a Phoenix? And, and we'll, we'll just settle Phoenix down for the night. And, and then Achilles had said, in Phoenix, tomorrow morning when I sail away, I, I've decided I will leave in the morning. When, when I sail away, Phoenix, why don't you come back home with me? You can come in my boat and, and, and we can go and both see my father and explain this situation. And, and and then, of course, the only member of the embassy left to do any talking or convincing was, was poor Ajax. And this was a pretty heavy burden on Ajax because Ajax was, well, he was the bulwark of the Greek forces next to Achilles. He was certainly the most powerful Greek fighter in the beach. And he was a man of a very, very, very stout heart and a wonderful disposition. But nobody ever really suggested that Ajax was a master of words or, or oratory or, well, there's even some less charitable suggestions down through the tellers through the centuries that Ajax might have not intellectually been possibly the sharpest of the knives inside of the Greek knife block. And whatever the case, though, Ajax was a, a serious comrade-in-arms soldiers of Achilles. So Ajax stepped forward and, and he tried to convince Achilles. And it was very clear that Ajax had completely missed the entire premise or thesis of Achilles's rejection of the Bronze Age worldview because Ajax just turned around and he shook his head and he said, for a girl, dude, like you're doing all of this for one girl and we've just offered you seven really, really fine ones. I, I just don't understand. And and Achilles, of course, didn't know how to even explain his new worldview and his his new existential way of thinking about life to his comrade in arm, Ajax. But then Ajax had turned around and sighed and, and said, the soldiers are dying, bro. Like, and, and tomorrow morning, I, I'll do my best. I'll, I'll try to hold off the forces, but it, it's not good, Achilles. And, and at that point, something had struck a chord with Achilles. He he couldn't be appealed to on the basis of personal honor. He couldn't be appealed to the basis of family honor. But Achilles could still, it turned out, be appealed to on the basis of of the well-being of his comrades in arms, the brothers in arms in the beach who had been through thick and thin with him over the years. And, and so Ajax had looked and appealed and then shaken his head. And Achilles had sighed and said, okay, Ajax, uh, here's what I will do. I will not, I, I will not go home in the morning. I, I won't sail away as I was intending to do. Instead, I will stay in my tent. And Ajax... Once the Trojans begin to burn the Greek boats, then Ajax, I will step into the fray and I, I will arm myself for battle and I will chase the Trojans away from the Greek army and I will allow the Greeks a safe and effective retreat from the shores of Troy. Now, essentially, folks, this isn't what, well, Agamemnon, king of kings, wouldn't want it. Achilles was not planning on re-entering the siege and the attack on the city of Troy. He was no interested, no longer interested in any of the political or the economic goals of Operation Trojan Storm. But he had decided that he would use his military prowess and the fear that he struck into, well, armies everywhere to allow the Greeks at least to effectively retreat from the beaches of Troy onto their ships without being completely decimated and destroyed by the Trojan army in the process. And, and that was the best that the embassy was going to actually get. So, uh, recognizing that the embassy had essentially been, well, a Pyrrhic victory at best, um, Ajax and Odysseus had headed back down to the far end of the beach to the command tent of Operation Trojan Storm with the with the mixed news for Agamemnon and the other warlords. Uh, Achilles was no longer interested in fighting. He no longer wanted to tear down the walls of Troy, but he would help effect a rear guard to get the Greeks off the beach, but only when the ships were on fire. And, and that meant that Agamemnon and the warlords decided, well, if we run away now, 
Hector will kill us. So let's at least put up a fight tomorrow and 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 hope for the best and know as our last resort, well, Achilles will be there to, to help us run away. So that was the plan and the warlords went off and retired and slept. Now, ladies and gentlemen, at this point, if you've been listening carefully, you, you might have a, a legitimate question or concern about, well, what Zeus and the other deities are up to up there in Mount Olympus, because you'll remember that Zeus's promise to Thetis was that she would allow the Trojans ascendancy over the Greeks up until such time as Agamemnon relented, recognized what a mistake he had made stealing Briseis and dishonoring Achilles, and, and that Agamemnon had then restored the honor of Achilles. And the plan was that once that happened, and Achilles' honor had been fully restored by Agamemnon and the Greeks, well, then Trojan ascendancy would be over on the beach, and, and Greek ascendancy would reassert itself, and Achilles would have his moment of honor and glory in the battlefield. So that had been the plan, and it's hard at this stage in the story to wonder if, well, Zeus had somehow got distracted and hadn't sat in on the embassy to Achilles scenes, which I just told you, or if Zeus and Thetis somehow didn't get the memo, because... Well, clearly, everything that Zeus had hoped for had now happened. Agamemnon had certainly relented. He had certainly apologized. He had certainly done everything any warlord possibly could to restore the honor of Achilles. And and so that part had been looked after. And the other thing that if Zeus had been paying half an attention to Achilles' speeches during the embassy, he would have recognized that Achilles, well, no longer was interested in honor anyway. So Thetis appeared to be engaged in putting forward an agenda on behalf of Achilles, which Achilles no longer had any personal interest in. Achilles didn't care about honor, but there was Zeus up on Mount Olympus ensuring that the situation was set up so that Achilles got honor. And there's only one of two ways of really thinking about this. As a storyteller, when I kind of think about the gods at this point, I, I, I kind of go, well, why, why didn't the gods, when they recognized that Achilles now just wanted to go home and, and Agamemnon had done what he could, why didn't the gods just sort of find some way of wrapping up the entire Trojan War with, with no more loss of life because clearly Achilles didn't want to fight. What was the point of actually carrying on with this? Option number one, of course, is that by this stage in the proceedings, the Olympian gods were, they were so personally invested in this battle between the humans happening on the plains of Troy that, well, they weren't really interested in the feelings of viewpoints or, well, the consequences to the human player's even if they ever had at one stage been. And and in, in this particular option, you have to think of the Olympian gods as essentially they've got themselves into a really big, fun game of risk. And, and, and they're moving these human pieces, these risk pieces around the risk board down on earth. And well, who wants the game to stop now just when it's getting interesting? Or, or, or another possible sort of analogy you could use is that Essentially, the Olympian gods, who obviously hate each other and have hard problems amongst themselves, are using the Trojan War as a proxy war down on Earth to figure out their domestic politics up on Mount Olympus. And, and essentially, then, the human beings are just pawns inside of an Olympian game of domestic and political chess. And now, if you accept that particular theory of Zeus and the gods and, and how they're engaging in the story, well, it's a bit of a damning indictment, at least from our 21st century perspective on things. But there is another possibility which I've been hinting at for a number of episodes, actually, well, 14 episodes so far, and maybe now it's sort of time to talk about that. And the other possibility, of course, is that the Olympian gods are pawns inside of a chess game too. Uh, 
Uh, certainly, the Olympian gods believe that they have agency over events. They're, they're making decisions. They're moving human beings around. They're trying to make things happen. And in that sense, they're very much like the human beings down in the battlefield and in the command tents who believe that they have agency over events and are, and are trying to make decisions. But there is a possibility that the Olympian gods actually have no more agency over how this war unfolds and the ultimate outcome of this war than do the human beings themselves. There is the possibility that there is another character lurking in the wings who is pulling all of the strings on the entire Trojan War epic. And, and that character goes by different names. Fate, deadly destiny, uh, inexorable destiny, inexorable fate. Call the character what you want. But there has been a shadowy character in the wings of virtually every one of the episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, uh, right up to this present one, who has moved events characters and situations in one direction or another towards some inevitable goal, which is at times apparently so mysterious and, and, and so vague or uncertain of purpose that even the gods themselves only catch glimpses of it now and then. And, and so there is a possibility, ladies and gentlemen, that Zeus himself really only has limited options. And Zeus himself is being moved around a cosmic chessboard in a, in a game which is so large that even the Olympian gods are incapable of, of understanding it or changing the parameters of that game. And the shadowy ultimate uber character inside of the entire Trojan War epic isn't Zeus himself, but fate or deadly destiny. Now, whatever the case, Hera, Queen of the Gods, wasn't going to accept that. Hera, Queen of the Gods, believed that she had agency. And as she was sitting up on Mount Olympus watching what was happening down on the plains of Troy below, Hera, Queen of the Gods, was seething with rage because her beloved Greeks were, well, they were having the stuffing kicked out of them by Hector and the Trojans. Uh, in the morning, uh, Zeus had carried on with his plan and Hector and his men had marched across the plain. And, well, by midday, the Greeks were standing backed up against their ships once again. Uh, the Greek tents were on fire and, and Ajax was standing there alone in one of the boats, desperately holding off in a rear guard action to try to keep the Trojans from actually setting fire to the boats. Agamemnon had been injured, Odysseus had been injured, Diomedes had been injured, Menelaus had been injured, and, and really Ajax was the only thing standing between a complete burning of the boats and, and and the Trojan army. And, and at that particular stage, Herod looked down and, well, she knew Zeus's plan for only temporary ascendancy to the Trojans, but any Greek lost was too much for Herod. And Herod decided that she needed to turn the tides of battle. She, she needed to find some way of, of saving her beloved Greeks. And the problem, of course, was that how was she going to do that with Zeus actively engaged in the planning and the participation right now? And Zeus was sitting over in a parallel mountain to Mount Olympus. He, he was sitting up high on Mount Ida outside the walls of Troy, and he was perched up there, and he was watching the battlefield uh, with an awful lot of intensity and excitement at this stage. And Hera recognized, I, I, I need to distract my estranged husband. I need some way of pulling his mind away from the battlefield so that he can help out the Greeks. And Hera thought a little bit, and she recognized, knowing her her husband Zeus, that if she was going to distract Zeus, there was only one surefire guaranteed way to do it, and that was going to be sex. Lots of crazy, wild, insane, no holes barred, animal fun, crazy sex. And and and, and Hera thought, that's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to get my husband into the sack. I'm going to have to keep him there for a very long time. And I'm going to have to make sure that afterwards he does what he always does or used to do when we slept together, which is roll over and fall asleep right away. And that will give me time to change the fate of the armies down on the plains of Troy. 
So Hera decided on her strategy. It was going to be seduction and sex. And, and, and then Hera up on Mount Olympus, well, went to work on preparing for the seduction. And, and it's really delightful watching Hera prepare because we have all kinds of wonderful scenes inside of the Trojan War epic where warriors prepare for battle and they, they carefully put on all of their armor and they attach all the pieces of armor very, very carefully. And, and, and up on Mount Olympus in her dressing room, Hera did the very same thing. She, she worked on the jewelry, the lipstick. She took out just the right dress. Uh, she put a beautiful veil onto her head. She put a lovely, lovely belt around her waist. She put on some really smoking hot, sexy little sandals. And, and Hera armed herself for war, which was likely an appropriate analogy for any, well, bedroom scenes between this estranged couple. And, and once Hera was fully armed and prepared for war, she recognized that, well, as any good warrior, she couldn't go into battle without a deadly weapon. So Hera turned around and, and she needed a particular weapon and it took her an awful lot of, of dissembling, lying and cheating. But eventually she managed to trick Aphrodite, who was obviously a fan of the Trojans, but Hera managed to trick Aphrodite into lending Hera an aphrodisiac, a, a very, very deadly weapon. And Aphrodite had turned around. She was so proud of this aphrodisiac that she gave to Hera. She said that this aphrodisiac I'm lending you, Hera, is so powerful that it'll work on even the most sensible of men. And Hera had bitterly turned around and said, well, then it'll certainly work on my husband. And then Hera, dressed to the nines and hanging this aphrodisiac between her breasts, had flown from Mount Olympus over to Mount Ida and worked on seducing her husband, Zeus. Uh, she walked back and forth in front of him, sort of essentially, if you will, obstructing his view of the big screen as he was trying to watch the game. And, and Zeus had looked up, and Zeus, clueless enough that he hadn't recognized he was being played, had seen this smoking hot woman with the aphrodisiac in front of him, and Zeus had turned around, and the Iliad tells us that Zeus was just completely overcome with a burning, uncontrollable lust. So he turned to Hera and spoke well, ladies and gentlemen, this was Zeus's attempt at speaking seductive words. And I'm going to have to quote from the Iliad here. It is just so well telling how Zeus attempts to seduce Hera, his wife. I quote. Well, I paraphrase. Hera, I have never seen a woman looking as fine as you. Hera, it is time for you and I to get down to business. Never have I been so hot for a woman as I am for you, Hera. Not even that time when I did Zixian's wife. You know, the, you know the girl that gave me the child, Peros? Or that time that I did Danae. Oh, no, there was a girl with a fine set of gams. Uh, she gave me my son, Perseus, if you don't remember. Oh, or that time that I did Europa. Uh, she gave me two kids. Uh, or, or that time I did Semele. No, there was a lady that could do things. Or when I did Alicema, or when I did Demeter, or when I did Leto, or well, now that I think about it, Hera, even that time I did you, you know, back in the day when we were sleeping together, Hera, wife, I am so hot for you, I'm hotter now than I have been for any of those other women I have slept with during the entire course of our marriage. So let's get it on. No, ladies and gentlemen, that is me paraphrasing book 14, line 295 and forward of Homer's Iliad. That was Zeus, king of the gods, at his finest, which makes a listener begin to wonder whether, well, was the aphrodisiac really for Zeus or was it to give poor Hera stomach for the job ahead? Well, whatever the case, it worked and Zeus immediately took his pleasure and then immediately, and Zeus being Zeus, I mean immediately, rolled over and fell asleep. 
and Hera went to work down on the plains of Troy. She, she called in Poseidon, a, a god who was very, very clearly on the Greek side. Uh, Poseidon turned around, he, he rallied the Greek soldiers, he restored the injured warlords to health, and led by Poseidon, the Greeks launched a heroic counterattack against the Trojan forces, and it was devastating. The counterattack went on for an hour, and during the course of that hour, the Trojans went into full retreat, and, and Ajax, armed with a huge rock, managed to throw the rock and actually hit Hector, knocked the wind right out of him, and Hector lay unconscious on the battlefield, blood coming out of his mouth. There were Trojans who thought that Hector might be dead. And then, at that particular point, with the entire Trojan army in full rout and retreat, Zeus, king of the gods, rolled over, woke up, stretched, yawned, and then idly leaned off the side of Mount Ida to take a look at how the game was proceeding down on earth below. And the first thing that Zeus saw, of course, was his beloved Trojans in full rout and Hector, leader of the Trojans, lying unconscious on the battlefield, blood seeping out of his mouth. The next thing he saw, of course, was his wife Hera with a malicious and mischievous smile on her face as she looked at her husband Zeus, who had been thoroughly and beautifully played by Hera. Well, Zeus flew into a rage and he uttered some of the least deific and godlike words that, that, that a man has ever uttered. He turned around and he said, Hera, you are one treacherous bitch. And then Zeus had gone on in even more detail, threatening his wife Hera with, well, physical harm, which, well, even in the Bronze Age would have been worthy of a restraining order. And then Zeus got up off of Mount Ida and Zeus went to work on restoring the damage that his wife had done. As Zeus called in his favorite deity, Apollo, huge champion of the Trojans, turned around to Apollo and said, yeah, you're the god of sickness and health. First of all, take care of Hector. We can't afford to lose him. Apollo had flown down and immediately restored Hector to full health. Uh, no concussion syndromes, no blood coming from the mouth. Hector was back at 100%. And then on Zeus's instructions, Apollo personally had stepped onto the battlefield and led the Trojans into a fierce counterattack of the Greek counterattack. Well, armed by Apollo and, and with Zeus cheering on and thundering from Mount Ida, the Trojans reclaimed all of the lost ground that the Greeks had taken. And within a matter of minutes, the Greeks were once again back at their ships. And within a matter of hours, Agamemnon was down, Diomedes was down, Odysseus was down, Menelaus was down. And once again, the bulwark of the Greeks, Ajax, was desperately, desperately, desperately fighting a rearguard action, trying to keep the Trojans from setting on fire the Greek ships. Now, ladies and gentlemen, at this stage, I think we should likely step into the tent of Achilles and see what's happening there. Now, Achilles' tent, if you will recall, way back from 10 years ago when the Greeks had arrived on the shores of Troy, Achilles' tent is on the very far end of the Trojan plain. Achilles had set that tent up as far away from Agamemnon's command tent as possible when he had arrived 10 years ago. So Achilles, who is not engaged in the fighting, but rather is actually sitting down at the seashore playing his lyre, he, 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 can, hear, he can hear the clash of arms, but he has no way of actually knowing whether the Trojans or, or the Greeks are in the ascendancy as, as the fighting is going on in the beach. So, so some hours earlier, out of curiosity on how the war was progressing, Achilles had, had turned to, to Patroclus and said, Patroclus, uh, leave the tent, go down, ascertain what's happening on the beach, let me know whether the Greeks are winning the Trojans winning and, and then come back to me right away, Patroclus. And 
Well, Achilles was waiting in his tent and Patroclus had taken a very, very long time to come back, some hours actually. And and then Patroclus had come back into the tent, uh, looked to Achilles and, and Achilles said, what is it, Patroclus? And well, Patroclus had burst into tears. Uh, Patroclus turned around to Achilles and he reported the news. He said, our, our Greeks are doomed. It's all over Achilles. He counted all the Greek warlords who were down and out of the fight, said Ajax is the only one holding on for us. The wounded are, are in the scores. And the thing that had taken Patroclus so long, of course, is that he had kept stopping along the way back and, and, and tending to wounded men. And maybe now, before we get on with what happens in that tent, I should tell you a little bit about Patroclus because he's one of those strange characters, folks, that up until this point in the entire Trojan War epic has really been non-existent. There's there's almost nothing we know about him. But then suddenly, well, in the next 15 to 20 minutes, Patroclus is going to become the hinge on which the entire future of the entire story unfolds. And so it's likely we're stopping to tell you a little about who this guy was. Uh, the only way that we ever see him inside of the Trojan War epic is either as a medic helping wounded soldiers on the battlefield, and and other Greeks always referred to Patroclus as gentle Patroclus. Apparently, he was an absolutely gentle, wonderful healer. He had a, a, a great sensitive touch. He was very, very, very good with this sort of thing, and he was universally loved by the warlords for this. And the only other place that we see Patroclus is inside of Achilles' tent at Achilles' side. And so there's all kinds of episodes in in the story where Achilles will turn around and and guests will come to the tent of Achilles and it is Patroclus who Achilles will instruct to to cut up the meat and and lay out the wine and and, and serve the warlords as they talk and and there's other scenes of course well just the recent one where Achilles turns to Patroclus and says old man Phoenix is tired uh, make up a bed for him in the inner tent for the night and Patroclus will head off and do that sort of thing and of course Patroclus is the guy that Achilles sends out on missions find out how the army is is faring and come back to me and let me know so Patroclus's role inside of Achilles' life seems to, on the surface, of course, be that of a subordinate. He's, he's not an equal of Achilles, clearly, and he's certainly not a warlord. We don't have any information inside of the Trojan War epic of, of Patroclus doing any serious warlord fighting. So I'm sure he could wield a sword. Any man inside of Greece could. But Patroclus isn't known as a warrior. He's known as a healer and as a confidant. And his role inside of Achilles' life, on the surface at least, is, well, it seems to be more like that if we want to use a medieval analogy, if you will, of a squire, or if you want to use a Victorian analogy, Patroclus is more like a trusted butler. But that doesn't really get at it, because it's very, very clear when Achilles and Patroclus talk to each other that they share a deep trust and, and bond. They they are absolute best friends and soulmates. And we, we know that Achilles and Patroclus grew up together on Achilles' estate. And there are many stories from the old from the old days of Achilles and Patroclus actually being educated together by the centaur Chiron back when Achilles was a, a preteen. And so they've been through everything together. And, and though Patroclus is certainly a subordinate, and if you will, a servant of Achilles's, he's also Achilles' most trusted confidant, friend, and soulmate. That These two are absolute best friends. And Patroclus gets away with things with Achilles that other warlords don't. Patroclus can turn around and, and, and call Achilles names. He can say, Achilles, you're being ridiculous or, or cruel or hard-hearted. And Patroclus has a certain license there that other men certainly don't have. So it's a very, very special and close relationship between the two of them. And so when Patroclus bursts into the tent in, in, in tears and crying, Achilles, of course, teases him and says, you're, you're, you're crying like a little girl. What is it, Patroclus? And Patroclus turns around and, and says, look, the entire cream of the Greek army is badly injured, save for Ajax. 
We're all going to die. And then Patroclus, because he's a friend, rounds on Achilles and says, and Achilles, you've got to have the most hard iron heart of any man I've ever met in my life. Uh, why are you sitting on the beach here in your tent playing the lyre when, when your friends, the fellow Greeks, are dying in the thousands? Achilles, it's time to get out there and fight. How long are you going to hold this grudge? This is ridiculous. Everybody's going to die. And, and Achilles at this point turns around and, and says to Patroclus, well, I said that I would re-enter the fight when the ships were on fire. And and well, my ships aren't on fire, and technically I haven't I haven't seen any smoke from the Greek ships, so I will not re-enter the fight until then. And and Patroclus at this point recognizing that well, Achilles' semantic argument was was going to doom the Greeks because, well, by, of course, the time the ships were on fire, it was going to be a little bit late for Achilles to step in and put the ships off of fire again. Uh, so Patroclus said, Achilles, you need to put on your armor and re-enter the fray now. Now is the time to save Greece if, if you if you're not as hard-hearted as you're acting. And and Achilles had again refused. So Patroclus had turned around, sighed and said, okay, if you won't do it, somebody has to save the Greeks. Achilles let me put on your armor. Let me go out there. I'll, I'll put on your armor. It's very distinctive. Everybody in the Greek plain and all the Trojans recognize your armor. And, and, and then Achilles, I will get onto your chariot and everybody recognizes your chariot. And, and folks, the reason everybody recognized Achilles' chariot is because all the other chariots on the Trojan plain were two horsepower chariots. But Achilles, unique among all the warlords, had a three horsepower chariot. It, it, it was badass fast. And, and so Patroclus had said, Achilles, here's what I'll do. I will put on your armor. I will get onto your chariot and I will rally the Greek forces. It, it will be a little bit of smoke and mirrors deception. I will drive the chariot back and forth in front of the Greek lines. And the Trojans, seeing your armor, seeing your chariot will assume that you have re-entered the fray. And with any luck, Achilles, that will be enough to drive the Trojans into panic. They will retreat. Everybody's afraid of you. Everybody knows that your history's most dangerous and lethal and glorious killing machine. And and that'll buy the Greeks some time to, to well, at least protect their ships. And, and does that sound like a plan to you, Achilles? Well, Achilles had listened to Patroclus's proposal, and Achilles knew in his heart of hearts that it was a really dumb idea. And the reason, of course, is that Patroclus was not a warlord fighter. And and so equipping Patroclus into, well, the glorious armor of Achilles, the preeminent warlord in the world, and then putting Patroclus onto a three-horsepower chariot, Patroclus, who was not a fighter, on this devastatingly fast chariot, and then giving Patroclus Achilles's spear, which, well, only Achilles could hurl. Well, it was great deception, but there was an awful lot that could go wrong with the plan if you were putting a hopelessly underqualified man into this particular situation. But Achilles, who for whatever reason did not believe that now was the time to re-step in and help the Greeks, Achilles had turned around and said, very well, Patroclus, go ahead with your plan. Go get yourself armed and dressed. We will do this thing on one condition. And Patroclus, you have to promise me that you will only drive your chariot back and forth in front of the Greek lines panic the Trojans, rally the Greeks, and then come back to my tent here. Do not, though, Patroclus, get engaged in the, in the serious fighting. Leave that for the warlords. And Patroclus had, had made this promise to Achilles and left the tent and gone to get armed and ready for battle. Well, Achilles had made his offerings and sacrifices to Zeus at this point. He knew he was sending his beloved friend off on a very sketchy and high-risk mission, if ever there was one. So Achilles had, had made beautiful sacrifices to Zeus and, and then presented Zeus with a, a twofold prayer. He said, Father Zeus, grant Patroclus glory today, and, and then Father Zeus, bring Patroclus safely back to my tent. 
Well, Zeus, listening up on Mount Ida, had heard Achilles' prayer, and Zeus, in his deific wisdom, or Zeus, controlled by forces of fate or deadly destiny and having no other choice, had Zeus had chosen to acknowledge the first half of Achilles' prayer and reject the second half. And a few moments later, Patroclus, pulled out from the tent of Achilles, screamed out a war cry of battle and, well, it had worked perfectly as planned. Uh, the Trojans had looked up. They were they were in the process of setting even more torches and throwing them on to the Greek ships when they had suddenly seen, approaching them at a distance, this glorious three-horse chariot with this shining, glorious gold armor of Achilles. And the Trojans had turned around to a man and realized that they were in trouble. The mighty Achilles, history's most deadly and glorious weapon of mass destruction, had clearly chosen this moment, this final moment, to enter the battle. And, and the Trojans, to a man, had turned around and panicked and run back as hard as they could towards the walls of the city across the plain. And, and, and Hector had done his best. He had tried to assure them he's only one man. But, uh, but even Hector, as he saw the glorious chariot of Achilles approach, Hector had turned and begun to trot backwards towards Troy too. And, and the Greek soldiers, of course, following for this deception just as well as the Trojans, had immediately let out a mighty hurrah and war cheer. And well, we know how the psychology of war works. If you believe that you're going to win, then in spite of the fact that your weapons are dull, you're exhausted and, and you're completely outnumbered, well, you start to win. And the, and, and the Greeks developed this exciting resurgency of power. And, and even the wounded of the Greeks dragged themselves back into the battle and they began to push the Trojans back towards the walls of Troy. Deceptive mission accomplished. And then Zeus decided to grant the first half of Achilles' prayer. Achilles had asked Father Zeus that he grant Patroclus glory. And as Achilles watched, Patroclus, who was just turning his chariot around and heading back towards the tent of Achilles, had suddenly stopped the chariot. And, and, and what Patroclus had experienced, ladies and gentlemen, was suddenly a, a, a tingling electrical sensation inside of his limbs, followed by a, a, a thirst. His arms and his body felt stronger than ever before. And, and then he was overwhelmed by a, a passion and a desire for combat, which he had never experienced in his life. And, and, and he was overcome by a feeling of military greatness and excellence, and he knew that his body had been transformed into a lethal and glorious and wonderful killing machine that could do all the steps inside of the dance of death. In short, ladies and gentlemen, Zeus on that morning granted Patroclus, a, a medic and a non-fighter, with a warlord's Aristea. And Patroclus, gentle Patroclus, turned into Patroclus the killing machine. And Patroclus then, instead of turning his chariot back towards the tent of Achilles, Patroclus had turned his chariot directly into the thick of the fighting and charged towards the retreating Trojans. And over the next hour of the fighting, Patroclus managed to slice down the cream of the Trojan mobility. He was unstoppable in battle. His era steel was like something he had never experienced before. Ladies and gentlemen, Patroclus was having the freaking time of his life. He was he, he was he was a sidekick, the guy that never went into battle, and now he was suddenly in the superhero's armor, and it was pretty freaking awesome. And within a matter of an hour, Patroclus had made it to the very walls of Troy himself, and in the full flush of his aristia, Patroclus began to believe that possibly he was a god, and Patroclus began to scale the walls of Troy. The walls of Troy, which prophecy said would never be destroyed by an enemy force. And at that moment, as Patroclus 
Patroclus began to scale the walls, Zeus had turned and nodded to Apollo and said, time for part two of Achilles' prayer to not be acknowledged. Apollo had flown down invisibly onto the battlefield and with a mighty smack had crushed his fist into the back of Patroclus' body. The armor, the breastplate, the backplate, the greaves, the shield, the helmet fell off of Patroclus and Patroclus, stunned and winded, crashed, confused, to the ground at the base of the walls of Troy. Well, as he lay there stunned, of course, a Trojan foot soldier, seeing the man down, had gone over and thrust a javelin into Patroclus' back then walked away, but Patroclus wasn't quite dead. He, he looked up, he gasped, he looked around, he reached for a weapon, and that's when Hector, of course, had suddenly realized that this was not Achilles who was attempting to scale the walls, but rather Patroclus. And Hector, grabbing his javelin and recognizing that Patroclus was down and Patroclus was no longer going to be a threat to the Trojan army, Hector had driven his javelin deep into the bowels of Patroclus and pinned him there to the ground. And Patroclus, gentle Patroclus, died directly below the walls of Troy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it was going to be a matter of time till Achilles, back in his tent, learned the news of what had happened to Patroclus. And when that news finally made it, things were going to happen to Achilles, which were going to change Achilles and, as a consequence, change the course of this war. And those things that were going to happen to Achilles and the way that the death of Patroclus was going to change the course of this war is, well, it's where we're going for podcast episodes to come. So I think we'll stop things now and leave dead Patroclus with Hector's spear rammed through his internal organs and his guts pinned there to the grounds outside the walls of Troy and pick up on the continuing story in episode number 15. So you obviously have the usual two choices at this point. If you want to get to episode 15 and tune in right away to Achilles' response to the death of his most beloved friend, then I'd invite you to do that. If you want to stick around for the post-story commentary, I'm going to spend the post-story commentary playing around with the Achilles-Patroclus relationship and spending some time exploring some of the challenges and issues which storytellers have faced with this relationship over the last 3,000 500 years. I think you will find it really, really fascinating. So for some of you, this is goodbye. Have yourselves an absolutely awesome day. Don't forget to head to the website, trojanwarpodcast.com, where episode 15 will be available for you any day soon. And for the rest of us, we'll pick up in about 10 to 15 seconds. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the post-story commentary. Now, I told you I was going to spend this entire post-story commentary exploring the Achilles-Patroclus relationship. And the reason I'm going to do this is because, well, of all the relationships inside of the entire Trojan War epic, no relationship has dominated the conversation, the debate, and the discussion among storytellers and scholars and critics and analysts, as has the Achilles-Patroclus relationship. So here's why. When when I'm telling this story, as I've told you in a 
previous post-story commentary, when I tell this story to audiences of high school students, so I've got you know, three to 500 students in an auditorium, and I tell them the story over four and a half hours. Uh, and when I finish the story, my post-story commentary always comes in the form of a question-answer session with those students in the auditorium. And, and inevitably, at the end of the story, one of the questions which always comes out in every presentation from some high school student is, well, sir, excuse me, Mr. Wright, but but were Achilles and Patroclus gay? Like, were they sleeping together? Were they lovers, sir? And and that's essentially in a teenager's way of phrasing the question, the question which has dominated the debate on Achilles and Patroclus for the last 3,500 years. What was the relationship between them and was there some form of sexual component to that relationship? And if there was a form of sexual component to the relationship, exactly what did that entail or look like? Now, the thing I find really awesome about high school students, at least the thousands of students I have told this story to, is that when they pose that question to me, they pose it without an agenda, a bias, or any particular political or ideological concerns. They, they, they just want to, they just want the facts. They want the information. And once they have the facts of the information, well, then as intelligent, sensible high school students everywhere do, they will take that information and make what sense they want of it later on their own time. So what I intend to do in the balance of this post-story commentary is essentially accord to you, my listeners, the same respect which I accord to my high school audience. I, I will review as best I can, the different theories and hypotheses of what it was that Achilles and Patroclus had between them, and then leave it up to you to decide what you want to do with that information. So essentially, there were three schools of thought on Achilles and Patroclus, and they go as follows. School number one, Achilles and Patroclus deeply loved each other and cared for each other. They were soulmates, and they did not have any form of sexual relationship or sexual component to their relationship. School number two, Achilles and Patroclus deeply loved each other, they cared for each other, they were soulmates, and they were engaged in a pederastic relationship. Both men, however, were heterosexual. And school number three, Achilles and Patroclus deeply loved and cared for each other, they were soulmates, and they engaged in a modern homosexual gay relationship as we would understand it now in the 21st century. So those are the, the, the broad strokes of the three different ways that people down through the centuries have viewed this relationship. So, so let's go on to school number one, the, the, the scholars, the academics, the, the listeners to the story who believe that the Achilles-Patroclus relationship was, was asexual, that they were just very, very, very close friends. And and the scholars inside of this particular school, their argument is as follows. They say, first of all, if you do a close reading of the Iliad, uh, Homer's Iliad, the, the primary text where Achilles and Patroclus are presented, you will find no actual scenes where Achilles and Patroclus are engaged in any form of sexual activity with each other. Then they will go on and say further, if you look more closely, you'll notice that throughout the entire Iliad, Achilles sleeps with multiple women, uh, slave girls once he loses Briseis or other slave girls. And and in one scene in the Iliad, of course, uh, Patroclus sleeps with a woman too. And the woman he sleeps with happens to be a slave girl that Achilles has captured on a recent raiding expedition and given to his best friend Patroclus as a gift. So these scholars would argue there's there's no overt action of a sexual nature between the two men. And, and then what these scholars argue is that the reason why down through the centuries some people have inferred or seen in the Achilles-Patroclus relationship a sexual component is because of the way that the two men speak to each other and about each other. And, and the language that Achilles and Patroclus actually use is really, really, well, by our 21st century standards, deeply, deeply personal, emotional, frank, and and even by our 
understanding of the way we use language romantic. In other words, Achilles and Patroclus will speak to each other in ways of talking which we in the 21st century, and obviously other people in earlier centuries, reserve for the ways that we talk or speak or communicate with people that we're involved in an intimate sexual relationship with. And, and so these Homeric scholars will, will, will turn to things like this. There's a scene inside of the Iliad where Achilles is having a dream in which he's visited by Patroclus's ghost after Patroclus is dead. And Patroclus says to Achilles the following, Achilles, may my bones be buried not far apart from your bones, Achilles. May they lie together just as we grew up together. And then Achilles replies, Come closer now, Patroclus. Let us embrace, if just for a moment, and, and take a small bit of comfort in grieving together. Now, I suppose if you have the right lenses on, you can see a sexual component, or at least an overly florid romantic component inside of that language. But the Homeric scholars from this particular school of thought say that's just our modern sensibilities grafting uh, that sexual component onto what is essentially just two comrades in arms on the battlefield who have grown very, very close in their years together, speaking affectionately about each other. And scholars at this point that are of this school will actually refer to other contemporary Bronze Age documents and say... See, this thing happens all over the place. And, and, and the favorite example, the comparative example, is another Bronze Age story, which is found inside of, inside of the Hebrew Scriptures, inside of the book of Samuel, for, for those of you who are Christians, inside of your Old Testament book of Samuel. And inside of this particular text, it, there's a story recounted of a, of a king, a Hebrew king named David, who, who has a companion, a younger companion, a male named Jonathan, who he is very, very deeply in love with. Who, and then Jonathan, of course, in, in this story, dies in battle, and David grieves him. And, and listen to what David, in his Bronze Age language, says when he's grieving about Jonathan. Jonathan, your love for me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Now, down through the centuries, uh, people have grabbed that and said, oh, well, then David was essentially saying that, Jonathan, I had a sexual relationship with you, which was even better than any of the sex I've ever had with women. And classical scholars, well, not classical scholars, but Homeric scholars who examined Bronze Age texts argue that, no, that's not what the text is saying at all. Again, in the David-Jonathan story, aside from those words, there's no, there, there's no evidence of a sexual relationship between them. And so uh, school number one says, when you're reading the Trojan War epic, when you're reading the Iliad, you just have to accept that conventions and levels of intimacy that we share when we're talking about our comrades in arms, other men, are changed down through the centuries, and we're just not used to the language, and the language is what leads us into believing there was a sexual relationship. Okay, now on to school number two. There are readers and storytellers, and there have been since classical Greece, who, who argue, no, 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 no. It's very clear that Achilles and Patroclus are engaged in a sexual relationship. The relationship they're engaged in is a pederastic relationship. And, and a little bit about this. Inside of the classical period of Greece, and I should give you just a couple of time markers here to reorient yourself. Uh, the war between Greece and Troy takes place on or about 1250 BCE. Uh, Homer accounts it, and it gets written down in the Iliad at about 700 BCE. And, and, and classical Greece begins to rise as a culture and a civilization sometime around 500 BCE and, and lasts for four to 500 years. So, so during this time period of classical Greece, 
The idea developed inside of the academic and the scholarly community that Achilles and Patroclus were engaged in a pederastic relationship. Now, here's how these relationships actually functioned inside of the classical Greek period. They, they were usually relationships which happened exclusively inside of uh, the upper class or the nobility of the Greek world, if you will. And in these relationships, a, a, an older man, an established man with wife and kids and a place in society of his own would, well, for want of a better word, adopt or mentor a, a, a young teenage man, again from the upper classes, and and he would essentially take on the responsibility of helping that young man realize his place inside of upper class society. So he'd take him to he'd take him to parties, he'd take him to business occasions, he'd, he'd show him the right people, he'd he'd set up connections for him. So so in a sense, sort of like a what we would call a mentor now. And and these relationships we know were consensual. The young man was free to choose and and to stay with or or leave this older man as much as he wanted. And the relationship would last until the young man came of age and became an adult himself. Uh, we don't know when, sometime 18, 19, 20 years old or so, at which point the young man would then head off, marry, have his own family and children, and and the tradition would continue. Now, inside of these relationships, there was a sexual element between the the older man and the young man. And, and the sexual element, the way that it operated, it involved a form of sexual activity which involved the older man achieving sexual arousal and satisfaction by rubbing his erect penis between the closed, lubricated thighs of the younger man as the two men stared into each other's eyes. The pederastic relationships were not typified or, or, or including of anal sex, which was inside of classical Greek society society not approved of on the large. And so these relationships certainly did have a sexual component to them. Now, who believed that this is what was happening inside of the Iliad? Well, the foremost scholar who believed that this is what was happening between Achilles and Patroclus was Plato himself. And he he cites the Achilles-Patroclus pederastic relationship inside of his work, the Symposium. And, and Plato wasn't alone. The, the Greek playwright Aeschylus who we have already met in a post-story commentary. Aeschylus wrote the play Iphigenia. Aeschylus also wrote a play called The Myrmidons, and well, we have lost most of the text of that play, unfortunately, but there are some quotes from the Myrmidons, that text which actually survive. And the quote that survives from the Myrmidons gives us a pretty clear idea of pederastry. So allow me to read the quote. Uh, this is Achilles, incidentally. He is berating Patroclus, who is now dead, for having died. Uh, Achilles is in deep grief, and Achilles says, Does it mean nothing to you, Patroclus, the, the unblemished thighs that I worshipped, and, and the showers of kisses that you had from me? Now, when Aeschylus presents these lines, it's very, very clear. He, the, the unblemished thighs make it very clear that he's referring to a pederastic relationship in which Achilles is the dominant and uh, Patroclus is the submissive, uh, the younger person in the relationship. Even though historically, the Homeric scholars will scream and say, uh, the text tells us that Patroclus was the older man. But finally, there was a Greek politician, and I'm going to butcher his name completely. His name was Asthenes, uh, contemporary from this time period. And his argument essentially was... Well, the reason that Homer doesn't tell us out and out that Achilles and Patroclus were engaged in a pederastic sexual relationship is because, well, everybody who needs to know can clearly see it inside of the text. It's all over there. So so, so this politician's argument is, uh, look, it, it's there. All you have to do is look for it and you will clearly see it. And, and ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the fascinating things about, well, literary scholarship and also about how cultures look at different literary works. And, and that is, of course, that 
if you go looking for a particular thesis inside of a text, uh, whether the text is uh, a story or a play or a film or a movie or a poem, there's a very, very good chance that you will find the evidence you need to support the thesis that you went in armed with. And, and that's just the way it is. I, I remember my own English literature university degree. By the time I'd graduated, there were some works which I had written more than one, two, three, or four or five essays on Great Gatsby uh, being one, Heart of Darkness, another, Huckleberry Finn. And by the time I got to my fourth or fifth essay on any one of these particular works, uh, well, I had got so adept at manipulating the language, the symbols, and the imagery inside of the work that I could make that particular text dance to any particular thesis I wanted to support. And the classical Greeks have sometimes been accused then of having a text which their community and their society and their value and belief system wanted to support, and that was that Achilles and Patroclus were in a pederastic relationship, and hence when they went to Homer's Iliad, they found the evidence that they were looking for. And that brings me finally to theory number three, and that's the theory that Achilles and Patroclus were engaged in a homosexual, egalitarian, loving, gay relationship, much as we would understand the term now in the 21st century. Sort of like uh, the modern families, Mitchell and Cameron, but was set in a Bronze Age in 1250 BCE. Now, this school of thinking that they were gay homosexual lovers really got off the ground, got formally articulated and locked down in a literary work by none other than William Shakespeare, who who wrote a play titled uh, Troilus and Cressida. And, and it's one of Shakespeare's more minor plays, but he sets the play actually on the Trojan plain. The action takes place shortly after Achilles has refused to fight. And inside of this particular play, well, the Greek warlords complain that Achilles has refused to fight, not because Achilles has been dishonored, but they claim that Achilles has lost the will to fight. He has become, quote, dainty of his worth because he is now spending all of his time, quote, upon a lazy bed with his lover Patroclus. And and one of one of the characters in the play actually turns around and refers to Patroclus uh, as Achilles's varlet or male whore, and and so Shakespeare clearly presents an Achilles and Patroclus who are engaged in a homosexual relationship. Now Shakespeare overtly inside of the play certainly doesn't support that relationship, but you have to recall that Shakespeare was writing inside of a time period when his culture, his community, and certainly the the dominant religion of his time and his nation would have made it absolutely impossible for Shakespeare to ever sort of come out openly and support any form of a homosexual relationship in a positive sense. But we should really, really be careful as scholars at this point, because well, next to the debate on Achilles and Patroclus, one of the other dominant and defining debates that keeps literally critics awake at night is the actual sexual preferences of William Shakespeare himself and the sexual preferences coded or embedded or or that can be decoded inside of the text of many of his plays. Uh, so if you really want to go looking for an unabashedly celebratory view uh, or literary view of Achilles and Patroclus as, as contemporary gay lovers. And what you really need to do is go up to the 21st century when we're very, very comfortable with homosexuality and gay relationships and, and look to the novel written in 2011 by Madeline Miller. And her novel is called The Song of Achilles. I've read this novel a couple of times and I really get an awful lot of pleasure and fun from it. It's always awesome to watch 
how another storyteller takes a myriad stories, myths, fragments of stories and things like that, that I have taken since, well, episode one of Trojan War, the podcast, and, and out of those fragments and stories and myths has cobbled together a coherent storyline. And, and Miller has done so. Her novel is wonderful. It has a nice coherent story and plot line. It, it, it differs in many places vastly from my own, but that doesn't mean that Miller's wrong and I'm right. It just means that two different independent storytellers working from the same material have come to a different story arc conclusion. But the thing about Miller's story is that it's narrated by Patroclus and it is essentially a coming of age story. It tells the story of Achilles and Patroclus growing up together on the Achilles family estate and it explains how Achilles and Patroclus come of age and gradually begin to realize and recognize in their teens their their sexuality and then recognize that they're they're not really attracted to all the uh, the myriad slave girls and women and, and Achilles and Patroclus begin to recognize and come to terms and accept their own their, their own sexual love and passion for each other and realize that they're gay and then they go off to Troy and well horrible things happen just like they do inside of well every version of this particular story now i recently found a script of a uh, of an interview with Madeline Miller, where individuals interviewing her after she'd written the novel said, well, why did you make them gay? What was your evidence for that? And Miller turned around and, and Miller actually cited Plato and said, well, Plato makes it very clear. And then Miller went back to the whole thing about language and said, when when she, as a 21st century writer, carefully reads the Iliad, she sees inside of the language and 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 the emotions of the two lead characters, Achilles and Patroclus, and these scenes when they're together and or when they're talking about each other, she sees more than ample evidence that there has to be way, way more here than than simply a if you will, a well a platonic relationship between a couple of war comrades at arms. And folks, finally, if you want to see the ultimate uh, celebration and expression of Achilles and Patroclus as, as gay lovers and the modern 21st century word of it, then all you have to do is go over to Google Images because Achilles and Patroclus seem to have been adopted by contemporary artists as heroes or champions of of a homosexual gay cause, much in the way that, well, for centuries, the David and Jonathan story was adopted by, by gay people that wanted to support that particular cause back in, in other time periods. So, so you will find really absolutely stunning and wonderful and gorgeous and often very affectionate and pointed and moving artworks done depicting Achilles and Patroclus, clearly though in a romantic relationship with each other. So the final question I want to leave you with is a big question of, well, does any of this stuff really, does it really matter? Uh, does it matter if we get it right? Does it matter if Madeline Miller decides to make Achilles and Patroclus homosexual lovers and they weren't? Does it matter if the classical Greeks decide to make it a pederastic relationship and, and it wasn't? A, does it really matter at all? And, and I, I think my personal argument or answer to that is no, it really doesn't. I mean, if you're a scholar and an academic and researcher, obviously you want to go back and get your sources correct. But if you're a storyteller, well, well, we storytellers always have to take the data, the content, uh, the characters, and and tell those stories and reframe those stories through a lens which uh, we as a teller understand, and and inside of a lens or a framework which our contemporary audience would understand. And and, and I certainly am not in a position as the number of things I've done in the last fourteen episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, to be throwing any stones in glass houses when it comes to tellings of text being culturally or socially implicated by the issues, the agendas, the beliefs of the time period, or even the issues, the agendas, or beliefs of yours truly, the storyteller. So, so. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. The critical thing is to remember that all scholars from all schools of thought agree that Achilles and Patroclus deeply loved each other, cared for each other. They were soulmates. And then Patroclus was killed by Hector. And ladies and gentlemen, 
it doesn't matter if you're gay, if you're straight, if you're bi, it doesn't matter what your sexual orientation, if you have lost the most important person in your life, in your universe, and you've suddenly and violently lost that individual, well, you will experience grief. And part of the grief process is anger and rage. And ladies and gentlemen, it is anger, rage, and grief, which is going to dominate the balance of the Trojan War epic. It is not going to be issues of sexuality. It is going to be Achilles' loss of the most important individual in his life, Patroclus. And so that's, I think, what the story focuses on and what, well, we as listeners would like to be prudent to focus on too. Sermon over. Time to say goodbye. I hope you've enjoyed the post-story commentary. And if you're interested, it's time to head over to TrojanWarPodcast.com where episode number 15 will be up and available for you any day now soon. In the meantime, have an absolutely wonderful day. Talk to you again soon.